Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Southeast Asia Dispatches, brought to you by New Narrative. I'm your host, PJ Thumb. Southeast Asia Dispatches is a fortnightly podcast series bringing you news, interviews and commentary from around Southeast Asia. In this episode, we look at changes underway in Vietnam to establish a framework for the ethical treatment of elephants rescued from abuse. We bring you a special feature about the history and struggles of Myanmar's ethnic minorities. And one of our contributors discusses his experience reporting on cases of two high-profile refugees from the Middle East who have fled to Southeast Asia to avoid persecution in their home countries. For years, selfie-seeking tourists have travelled to Southeast Asia in the hope of experiencing elephant riding tours. But growing awareness of animal rights issues in the region has led to more people boycotting them. Recently, Vietnam's Yok Don National Park scrapped tourist elephant riding completely and launched what staff claim are the country's first ever ethical elephant tours. There's hope that the move will spark a mindset change in the country. But with working elephants an important part of the culture in Daklak province, where the huge government-run park is based, there's likely to be resistance. Jamie Fullerton headed to Yokton National Park to find out more. They would actually use captive adult elephants to go into the forest, track down a herd, and try to separate the youngsters. You take it back to the village, they would tie it to a tree, they would starve it, they would dehydrate it. Sometimes they put bands around the belly so they can't lay down and rest. They break them mentally. They would beat it with bullhook, inflicting it on the head, inflicting it on the legs, inflicting it on the bum. So a lot of the captive elephants that you actually see do have scar marks. My name is Dionis Lagte. I'm the Animal Welfare Manager for Animals Asia Foundation in Vietnam and currently we're at Yok Don National Park in Bondon Daklak province. I meet Dion at the park entrance, about 300 kilometres northeast of Ho Chi Minh, where locals from the Monong ethnic group are playing rice wine fueled gong music. Just now you heard an elephant bull named Tong Nang trumpeting in a river in the park. Dion was talking about breaking the elephant's spirit, a process criminalised in Vietnam in 1995. Before then, people here would tame elephants taken from the wild to sell and put to work on farms and, in the last few decades, let tourists ride. Tong Nang, who's in his 20s, would have been one of the last elephants in Vietnam to have his spirit broken in this way. He, along with three other captive elephants in Yok Don, which is owned by the government, used to spend every day wearing a howdah, that's an elephant saddle, so they could give tourists rides. This exhausted the elephants and prevented them from foraging for food. But in June last year, these creatures gave their last tourist rides. Animals Asia convinced park staff to ban the activity, then last October launched what they said were Vietnam's first ethical elephant experiences. Big spider. But it's not moistened us. Dion and Joy Vu Duck, head of tourism at the park, take me into the forest to meet the elephants in this new, supposedly ethical way. Some bamboo drop down here. This is the elephant. 
so elephant easy to hold that and put like that so they can get easy the leaf yeah it's favorite food for them yeah very nice we see two female elephants knocking down trees so they can get to the vines using their trunks to chuck mud on their backs natural sunblock now tourists aren't allowed to touch these animals and they roam the park with relative freedom each with a mahout that's an elephant trainer accompanying them the elephants massive ears flap as they clock mahouts carrying banana plant treats After I think it was about a month and a half, they could see the elephants were getting rounder. Their skin was starting to look healthier. They're having less parasites in their skins because they can now dust and dirt themselves. Their digestive system is much better because they can walk and they can eat and they have a better variety of food. Plus they can just now do what an elephant does in the wild, eat up to 18 to 20 hours a day. Why is cracking down on elephant riding just happening now in Vietnam? Over the past decade, social media has heightened awareness of animal rights globally, shaming bad conditions in many Asian animal tourist centres. Also in the past decade, a spate of supposedly ethical elephant sanctuaries with no tourist riding options have operated in Thailand, Cambodia and Laos, countries surrounding Vietnam, as more and more tourists say riding elephants is cruel. With fewer than 100 captive elephants in Vietnam, compared to thousands in Thailand, there hasn't been so much of a focus on elephant riding here. Southeast Asia in general, animal welfare is something that we, we start talking about it, um, but especially Vietnam, but for example China as well, it, it's really new. Um, people only start to acknowledge the fact that animals might have certain emotions and in the bigger picture that most people here still see animals as more of they're having a use keeping them fed but they do see them as a tool to make some money to to earn a living elephants are important to rural working culture here for generations Hmong people worked them on farms then around 20 years ago started offering tourist rides on them as new farm vehicles reduce the need for elephants to work as beasts of burden. In Buon Don Tourist Centre, next to Yok Don, elephants give rides as grumpy mahouts occasionally whack their heads with sticks as the elephants unleash huge plops of dung. <laughs> Ban Don Eco Village, also nearby, showcases Minong culture. There's a statue of Voa San Voi, known as Elephant King, one of the early mahouts of the area, who died in 1937 and reportedly owned nearly 500 elephants. A Manong guide shows me a female elephant named Hatuk standing chained to a post. She uh, thinking of riding elephant very normal way because she, from long time ago, she see the minority ethnic people here, they taming elephant for working the farm. And then they also riding them, traditional. I meet Mrs. Tao. Her family owns this place. This is the first place that the kings of elephant hunting and taming you know, go to the forest to pick the elephants. Mm. And then after the taming procedure, they will let the elephants become the members of the family. 
They give the elephant a name. Every year they make the birthday celebration for the elephants. Yeah, and when the elephant dies, they burn the tomb for the elephants. Because the habit of the tourists, they still want to come to see the elephant, then sitting, taking the picture. I said, it's okay. Can taking the picture and drive very short distance so the elephant will not feel tired. So as long as there's demand for rides, you feel you have to give the tourists what they want, right? Yeah, I, I can give them what they want, but in my control. If they come to this land, they don't see any elephant. This will make them feel disappointed. Back in Yokdon, it's Tong Nang's bath time. He joyously rolls in the water, washing his back on the riverbed. The scene highlights the clash between woke animal rights values and Vietnamese elephant-taming tradition. You can hear the bell around Tong Nang's neck, and his mahout has a metal-tipped bullhook he occasionally raises to show who's boss. Dion says these instruments are being phased out here. Another challenge is for these supposedly ethical elephant viewing tours to be economically sustainable. The Olsen Foundation, an animal charity, donated 13,000 US dollars to cover the loss of earnings ditching tourist rides will cost Yokdon in their first year running. Head of Tourism, Mr Joy, is confident they'll attract enough tourists to survive without subsidies soon. Many people don't want to ride because they love the animal. To make the demand, we change completely. I hope all the, all the family have kept the elephant they will choose in the future. On my final night in Yokdon, in the restaurant where the elephants' disused howdah symbolically hang from beams, I asked Dion to recall the final day of elephant rides there. And I actually went out to take a few pictures because I thought this is this is it. This is changing history for elephants here in Vietnam. This is the start of the end of elephant riding tourism here in Vietnam. Do you prefer elephants or humans? I prefer elephants. What we've put them through, how they were broken and, and how they've been worked in logging and tourism elephant rides and hammered on the head with metal spikes and still tolerate us being so forgiving. Human race can learn something by just looking at that. That was brought to you by Jamie Fullerton reporting from Yokdon National Park. When the British Empire withdrew from Myanmar in 1948, they left behind a country divided. With the Bama ethnic majority eventually taking control, hundreds of ethnic minorities were forced under the rule of a central government. With much of the past 70 years spent under one of the most closed-off dictatorships on the planet, Myanmar has experienced long-running civil wars between the state, military and ethnic armed organisations. Now, in its gradual transition towards democracy, Myanmar's government has made moves to seek peace with the ethnic groups in its rural regions. But all divisions remain, and ethnic and religious minorities in the country still suffer from long-held prejudices and discrimination. Victoria Milko takes us through the history of colonialism, oppression and unfulfilled promises that have bred conflict between Myanmar's many ethnic groups, leaving thousands displaced and struggling to hold on to their cultures and traditions. Several hundred people dance, twist and turn to the beat of a drum emanating from a loudspeaker. They're performing the sacred banao, 
a dance which has been part of Kachin culture for hundreds of years. But this traditional ceremony isn't being done in Myanmar's Kachin state. Instead, it's taking place in neighboring Thailand. The Banao, dance to celebrate events like crop harvest and war victories, is controversial in Myanmar nowadays. Until recently, the dance had been banned for decades, along with many other cultural practices for almost all of the over 135 ethnic groups across Myanmar. While the performance has been legalized again, the grounds that the dance should be performed on are now owned by the Burmese government, whose military have been engaged in a brutal civil war with the Kachin's arm wing, the Kachin Independence Army. Many believe that dancing them now on land occupied by the government is disrespectful to local cultures and traditions. This is just one example of the complex relationship that the predominantly Bama Myanmar has with ethnic minorities across the country. The dynamics of various relationships mean that these groups often experience various forms of social, economic, and violent oppression by the Burmese authorities. While the struggle has changed for some groups over the years, it's far from being over for all of them. It takes a brief history lesson to understand some of the root causes of the ethnic divisions in Myanmar that exist in present day. For centuries, the land that would become Myanmar had a series of dynasties and kings that resulted in ever-shifting alliances and constant wars. Distinct regions were carved out, with kingdom names like Arakan, Shan, and Mon that are still recognizable today. Trade routes between China and India crisscrossed the land, bringing even more cultural and religious influences into the mix. Things changed drastically with the arrival of the British in 1824. The colonialists played ethnic groups against each other, stoking deep intertribal tensions. In addition, they divided up the country by administered zones, including frontier areas, that were administered separately by the British with the Burma Frontier Service. The frontier areas were inhabited by ethnic minorities such as the Chin, Shan, Kachin, and Kareni. But at the turn of the century, a growing nationalist movement, led by the Young Men's Buddhist Association and privileged Burmese who had been educated abroad, began to make waves. Student protests broke out, with leaders including Aung San Suu Kyi's father, Aung San, and his accomplices. During World War II, Aung San and several other student leaders, promised some level of autonomy for Burma, sided with the Japanese. Upon the British return to Myanmar, there were political and social discontent amongst the local population, leading to major steps towards independence. In 1947, during the signing of a historic agreement in the town of Panglong, Aung San promised ethnic minorities in the frontier areas full autonomy and internal administration. But the deal would never come to fruition. Just a month later, Aung San was assassinated by political rivals, causing Myanmar to mourn the leader they considered the closest to unifying Myanmar for decades to come. The formation of the Union of Burma, undertaken shortly after Aung San's assassination, was designed to be a federation of different peoples, led by the Bama ethnic majority. This left ethnic minority groups feeling uneasy, and when Prime Minister Unu refused to allow ethnic states to cede after 10 years, as had been promised by the Burmese constitution, rebellion and violent skirmishes broke out across the country. In March 1962, socialist leader Ne Win staged a coup d'etat, putting in place an interim government that had a Bama first agenda, led by the Burmese military or Tatmadaw. Protests were squashed with violent state response, and thus began the decades-long military dictatorship 
Bama and Buddhist-centric policies that would disempower all non-Bama ethnicities. At this time, Nguyen also enacted a policy of Burmanization, which aimed to homogenize the country through a series of brutal policies. This led to a violent cultural crackdown on ethnic groups across the country, including the banning of practicing ethnic traditions, teaching ethnic languages, and more. In response, ethnic minority groups began forming larger rebel factions. The country plummeted into decades of civil conflicts across the country, causing up to 250,000 dead and a million people displaced. Sitting in a village in eastern Karen state, Karen activist and former internally displaced person Dodo reminisces about how he had to flee the violence of the Tatmada when he was just three years old. Yeah, when I was three years old, like, I still had uh, kind of like a memory about the, 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 the living condition in that the refugee camp. You know, it's very crowded. It's kind of like a, when we first got there, it's very like a rain, rainy season. So it's a big challenge, you know, like uh, not only me, like other like children as well. And uh, we, we, at the first time, like, we didn't have enough like, uh, humanitarian assistance or support. Dodo continued to live as an internally displaced person and refugee for years, fleeing from one village to the next as the Tatmadaw continued to forcibly move villagers and continue a scorched-earth policy in ethnic areas. Dodo's experience wasn't unique. Many of the ethnic areas like Karen and Kachin are rich in natural resources further exasperating civil conflicts, says human rights defender Nikki Diamond, who works for Fortify Rights. Natural resources is one element of contributing to a civil war because the Myanmar military need income to survive, to, to have a, a weapon and to treat their soldiers. And also ethnic army also for their survival, they need income revenue. So Jake mining is uh, a kind of natural resource in kitchens, uh, one part of feeding to grow their army, uh, ethnic army and also military. So military is a so-called legitimate institution in the country, so they can easily uh, occupy those land and attack. Uh, so for the ethnic kitchen, they, they believe like Burmese military is invading in, in their homeland and taking uh, natural resources. So, so natural resources, sometimes I've seen um, uh, military occupying the, some land in Kachin. So because of the conflict, villagers or native flee from their habitat. For decades, ethnic groups in these and other regions documented routine human rights violations at the hands of the Tatmadaw. These include rape as a tool of war, landmine placement, forced recruitment, use of child soldiers, denial of humanitarian aid to civilians, and more. The effects of attacks from decades ago continued to linger, too. As recently as last year, the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs estimates that there are still over 600,000 internally displaced people in Myanmar, with the number fluctuating every week due to continued civil conflict across the country. Aid to many of these areas remains restricted. Din Zha Shunlei Yi, an activist and organizer involved in the peace process, says it's important not to forget about these populations. So there are IDPs and there are refugees in the, in the border area as well. They've been there for many years. There is no proper rehabilitation plan for the us IDPs. But many people have been focusing on the Rohingya. But at the same time, I want all the international government and all the international community as well to also talk about the IDP. They've been there for many years and it's become normal. 
being ITV, young people being ITV in the in the time border is being becoming a normal. That this normalization process is really hard. I think it's really important to to highlight the Rohingya, I mean the refugees and the ITVs in the inside Burma, also in Bangladesh, as well as to we should not forget about the ITPs in Karen State. Also in Shan State, in Kachin State, they are there for many years as well. As Western attention is fixed to the western side of Myanmar, where the Rohingya crisis continues to unfold, aid for the rest of the country and its displaced populations continues to fall, leaving thousands scrambling for options. The Union Peace Conference 21st Century Fellow is now opened. In March 2015, in an attempt to start the peace process, a National Ceasefire Agreement, or NCA, was drafted by the Burmese army and eight armed ethnic groups. But celebrations were short-lived, as several groups dropped out during the negotiations due to the lack of promised ethnic federalist rights. Those who dropped out included some of the nation's largest ethnic armies, including the United Wa State Army, Kachin Independence Army, and Shan State Army North. At the same time as the NCA was being created, the National League for Democracy was ramping up a campaign platform based on national reconciliation and peace. Months later, on November 8th, the NLD won by a supermajority, firmly placing Aung San Suu Kyi's party in the government, with her assuming the new role as state councillor. Less than a year later, the 21st Century Pangalong Conference was held to discuss the possibility for a lasting peace. There were, however, restrictions. Non-signatories of the 2015 NCA were prohibited from speaking, and some armed groups said they were denied invitation altogether. Thus, the first session of the 21st century Panglong failed to make much headway in resolving differences between the government, military, and ethnic rebel groups. Then Zashun Lai Yi voiced disappointment with the government that many throughout the country have echoed. So Dong San Suu Kyi, their party uh, mandate was to amend the constitutions and for the peace processes. So I think that the current ruling party have a different strategies than what we activists and the human rights defenders has been thinking is quite different, like reconciliations. We, what we were expecting is reconciliation with the ethnic minorities, religious minority, or the one who, who got oppressed. But actually the reconciliations, as we see right now, is just with the military. So it's been really hard first. There have been two other peace conferences since, both also lacking tangible progress for finite outcomes. Another conference is to be scheduled this year, but belief in the effectiveness of such meetings is dwindling. One of Myanmar's most shocking human rights violations against ethnic minorities came in 2017. On August 25th, the Myanmar government announced that 71 people had been killed during attacks from Muslim insurgents on military posts. The Iraq and Rohingya Salvation Army, or ARSA, claimed responsibility for the attacks, claiming they were taking defensive actions, accusing government soldiers of raping and killing civilians. The group also claimed that Rathadong, which had a high Rohingya population, had been under a blockade for more than two weeks, starving the Rohingya. <laughs> The response from the military and allied Buddhist militias in the region was brutal. Within weeks, thousands were killed, with nearly 800,000 Rohingya fleeing into neighboring Bangladesh. Reports of the military raping Rohingya women and children, firing upon fleeing civilians, and the burning and bulldozing of Rohingya villages emerge, vetted by international organizations like Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and more. 
the United Nations would eventually determine that the intent of genocide was evident. Amid calls for actions, the United Nations established a fact-finding mission, later releasing a 444-page report outlining the human rights violations that had occurred in Rakhine, Kachin, and Shan states. In Rakhine, the mission found that four of the five requirements for genocide had been fulfilled, including killing, causing serious bodily harm, inflicting conditions designed to destroy the group, and imposing measures to prevent births. The Myanmar government denied all accusations. Today, over 800,000 Rohingya remain on the border between Myanmar and Bangladesh. When talking about ethnic persecution in Myanmar, it's nearly impossible to dismiss the importance of the 1982 citizenship law. The Burma Citizenship Act of 1982 grants citizenship to individuals residing in Burma who could trace their family residency to prior to 1823, that is, the year of the first British military campaign on Myanmar, and with it, a wave of immigration from China and India. The law, which was a part of a series of actions taken by the nationalist Burmese junta to strengthen Burma ethnic power, is deeply problematic. Transnational ties are common among many families of various ethnicities, and there's rarely documentation to prove whether a person has deep enough roots in Myanmar. To add to the troubles, the act only allows citizenship for the 135 ethnicities in Myanmar, a list created and promoted by the military while Myanmar was still under military rule. Many view the list as highly flawed, with errors such as naming several groups twice while excluding others, like the Rohingya. Some even suspect the military divined the supposed number of national races through numerology, a common practice of the junta. When they declared that there were exactly 135 national races, some analysis noted that the three digits, 1, 3, and 5, added up to the number 9, the military's supposedly lucky number. As a result, many in Myanmar with mixed identities or different ethnic backgrounds often face issues with obtaining their National Registration Citizenship, or NRC, cards. Those who can't prove their heritage receive second-tier citizenship in the form of Foreign Registration Cards, or FRCs. To this day, people with mixed ethnic heritage must stand in a separate mixed-blood queue when obtaining documentation like new NRCs or passports. Those in the queue are also expected to pay bribes or tea money in order to have their paperwork completed. Without doing so, people have reported waiting years for paperwork vital to living, working, and traveling within the country. Further, NRCs require people to list their religion, which is something that can cause quite an issue for religious minorities, particularly Muslims living in the majority Buddhist Myanmar. Tanto Ong, a young Muslim man living in Yangon, said both his religion and the appearance of his dark skin have garnered him second-class treatment from a young age. I was exposed to discrimination long before I knew what was happening to me was discrimination. I, I was treated differently just because of my religion and my skin color. In classroom, in class, classes, in classroom, even by the teachers, as well as in our neighborhood, when I go on play with other kids, I was always treated differently under this racial law. And I didn't knew that that was discrimination. I didn't know that as a kid. I, I, I always had a question, but why was I like born subordinate? Again, this experience isn't unique. Many religious minorities, especially those who might have physical traits that don't appear traditionally Bama, Experience difficulties. Religious segregation in communities in the volatile Rakhine state have led to continued animosity and even physical violence between religious groups, with reconciliation seeming like a distant probability. The sentiment of Kin Nui U, who has been living in a Rakhine Buddhist IDP camp in Sitwe for years, sums up the thoughts of many in her region. 
Honestly, what I want the government to do is to send the Muslims back to the original place. This is our land and water, and we want to live here. Whenever we are asked if we want to live with them again, we say we don't want it to happen. With civil, ethnic-driven war, religious extremism from multiple faiths, and a lack of progress in the peace process, it's easy to assume that the challenges are insurmountable. But Dinsar Shunlei says it's not time to give up hope yet. Instead, she says, we should look to the younger generation of Myanmar. So in Myanmar, the young people since independence, they never missed to lead the crowd of uh, showing them the alternative, the revolutionary since independence. They dream a different dream. They dream a, a, a different new nations. But they, their voices and their role are not being recognized. But they're certainly working to be heard. In the last year, several major protests have been led by young people across the country, calling for an end to civil violence, greater right for freedom of expression, and the right to due process. With young people making up 60% of Myanmar's population, this represents the potential for a huge shift in policy in the country. So there are young people in Myanmar who think differently. And I want to tell the, the, community, the international community to also listen to the young voices to make sure you recognize what is happening in the ground. So the young people have different ideas, the young people have different perspectives on what's happening. So don't forget to listen to them as well. That was brought to you by Victoria Milko in Yangon. In the past year, Southeast Asia provided temporary shelter for two high-profile Middle Eastern refugees fleeing persecution in their home countries. Hassan Al-Khanta lived in the Kuala Lumpur airport for six months, while Rahaf Al-Kunun barricaded herself in an airport hotel room in Bangkok. Both became high-profile cases of asylum-seeking, using social media to amplify their causes before they were granted refuge in Canada. But their cases also led to a backlash online in Malaysia and Thailand, and even in Canada, where some feel the two have jumped the queue ahead of thousands still waiting to be resettled. Adam Bemma argues that this isn't the case as he looks back at the experiences of the two asylum seekers. Nas Daly's viral video last year about Syrian asylum seeker Hassan Al-Kantar calling him an airport prisoner set off a firestorm on social media. War, prison, refugee, airport, passport, stuck. The following is a riveting true story. Some Malaysians felt that Hassan was ungrateful for the assistance he'd received during his seven months at Kuala Lumpur International Airport. But Hassan had told me he was thankful for everyone's generosity. In fact, he'd originally wanted to stay, but educated himself on life for undocumented migrants and refugees. Malaysia is not a part of the 1951 Refugee Convention or the 1967 Protocol. It's even almost impossible for Syrians to get work in Malaysia. Yeah. So, yeah. Hide it for a yeah. The UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, states there are 162,430 registered refugees and asylum seekers in Malaysia. None of them can legally work or study there. Hassan didn't want to live somewhere without basic human rights. Not long after the Nas Daily video went viral, Hassan was detained. Officials accused him of being in a forbidden area of the airport. 
I thought back to the day we met at KLAI Domestic Transfer Lounge. Hassan showed me all of his belongings, a thin mattress, a pillow, a coffee cup, and a book. It was Indonesia Etc. by Elizabeth Pasani, a book I'd read and enjoyed. We discussed it while we sat under the escalator, Hassan's makeshift bedroom. You mind sit on that? Hassan had arrived in Malaysia in October 2017 after being deported from the United Arab Emirates. He'd lived and worked in the UAE for 11 years, avoiding serious devastating civil war and compulsory military service. Hassan pleaded with UAE authorities to be sent to Malaysia as it's one of the few countries that allows Syrians visas on arrival. In Malaysia, Hassan had overstayed his tourist visa, hoping to find work in KL. Last March, he had to pay a penalty fee before being allowed to fly to Cambodia. But in Phnom Penh, he was denied entry and sent back. So this is where he stayed, at the airport, out of protest. Hi. Uh, this is going to be a little bit longer than usual. Hassan so. took to social media to share his story with the world. He quickly gained many followers and international media attention. Social media has a very powerful voice and a magic uh, way of how things uh, turn on to my interest. I have a lot. I can assure you that I have more lovers now and than I ever in my life. A Canadian named Lori Cooper saw Hassan's viral videos and wanted to help. She mobilized two Canadian lawyers to file a refugee sponsorship application on Hassan's behalf to bring him to Canada. The usual processing time for a refugee application to Canada is two years. But Hassan knew his time at the airport was running out. So the Canadians started an online petition to call on the government to allow Hassan to leave immediately on humanitarian grounds. Hi. I know I look like someone who ran from the Stone or Middle Ages. After a seven-month stay, Hassan was arrested. He spent 56 days in detention. I've heard many stories about refugees facing abuse and inhumane conditions inside Malaysian detention centers. I waited for news about him. The government of Canada intervened on his behalf. Next thing I knew, he was on a plane bound for Vancouver. I'm in uh, Taiwan International Airport. Uh, for tomorrow, I will be reaching my final destination. At 37 years old, Hassan is now Canadian. He no longer has to worry about being deported to Syria. The UNHCR states there are 25.4 million refugees globally like him. Hassan is now their spokesperson. My advice would be to have steam. She is just a teenager who found herself out of a sudden in the middle of a massive media store. Last month, Rahaf Mohammed, formerly Al Qanun, locked herself in a Bangkok airport hotel room and demanded asylum over deportation. Canada stepped in again and granted it in record time. This set off another social media storm of posts and tweets. Hassan said she could become the next Malala Yousafzai. I believe him. The two could work together on refugee rights. Both Hassan and Rahaf are courageous new Canadians willing to demand the universal rights that belong to every one of us. They are no longer airport prisoners. It's up to us to address and inspire people back home uh, to make the change. The last three, four days uh, was a disaster. It shifted even in the media from uh, women's rights in the Middle East to fights among religious. There is nothing wrong with any of them. The first rule as a human right is to respect others' beliefs, even if we don't share them. Freedom is responsibility. That was brought to you by Adam Bemba. And that's it for this episode. 
We'd like to thank our contributors, Jamie Fullerton, Victoria Milko, and Adam Bemma for making this episode possible. Be sure to tune in to New Narrative's Political Agenda next week, our fortnightly podcast on current affairs in Singapore. And check out our website at newnarrative.com for more stories from Southeast Asia. If you enjoy what we're doing, please do support our work by subscribing to New Narrative at newnarrative.com slash join. Subscriptions start at just 52 US dollars a year. That's just one US dollar a week. This is PJ Thumb wishing all our listeners a great week ahead. Sampai jumpa. Thank you.